Good to see so many of you here. And thanks, Julie, for inviting me to set the scene for today's event. So I'm very much the warm-up act. Um, so the idea is I provide some really general context. Um, I'm going to also identify some of the challenges uh, that I think are associated with teacher training of PGRs or doctoral researchers. Some of these are structural issues, so might not be um, alterable by individuals, but others are more local. And uh, we'll hear, as Julie said, later on um, for a number of case studies where people have sought to address challenges at a number of different levels. So I'll draw a little bit too on a small research project that I did last year in a middle-sized London university, uh, looking at the experiences uh, of PGRTs or postgraduate researchers who teach and their experiences of research and teaching and the kind of connections or non-connections between the two. So my little introduction is going to be structured in this way uh, and using the very basic reflective questions. Uh, so why we train doctoral researchers to be HE teachers? Why are we discussing this issue? And why are we discussing new approaches? What is training for doctoral researchers envisaged as in general and with in particular with regard to teaching? What should it cover? How is training for doctoral students delivered? And then, so what? What are the implications of the models and practices that we do have? And what challenges do we face in preparing doctoral researchers to teach? I'll also draw a little bit on student experiences, uh, the researchers that I spoke with, um, which hopefully will nicely bookend uh, the day in terms of hearing that student or researcher voice. And then a little bit, sort of what next? <coughs> where do we go from here? But there won't be that much of that because... You know, this is an open, going to be an open question um, for you to talk about um, later. So, just to, to get you in, in the mood for uh, collaborating and participating, I'm hoping this is going to work. This is a poll everywhere uh, poll. So, if you've got a laptop or a, a mobile device of some kind, um, <coughs> I'd like you, if you would to just type in a couple of words when you actually find the poll, I'm hoping it's going to work. Um, what was your experience of teacher training as a doctoral researcher, if indeed that was your uh, role, or what it is for those of you who are still doctoral researchers? If you haven't had that direct experience, then you can put in something that, you, you know, some experience that it's of somebody close to you perhaps but just to to get you thinking <clears throat> from your own experience okay so just get back to my reflective questions so why is doctoral research training for teaching and other aspects um, of the role for that matter important for us to think about so HE research is frequently represented, as I'm sure you know, as part of the knowledge economy. Um, purposes of academic literacy at all educational levels are frequently linked overtly with economic benefit. So here is, for example, 
um, the former RCUK statement of expectations of researcher training, um, this desire to develop highly skilled researchers to achieve impact across the whole economy. And we can see phrases like this in numerous government uh, publications, for example, the white paper which ushered in the TEF, of which more in a few moments. But also connected with, with economics in some ways is, of course, the expansion of UK HE since the 90s, where we've seen increasing levels of teaching undertaken by part-time temporary staff to cope with expanding cohorts and to, to save money. Um, many of these, as Julie indicated, are PGRs, uh, doctoral researchers, and institutional uh, institutions and degree programmes have developed what um, Zaka uh, 2009 described as structural reliance on this work, particularly in research-intensive universities. So, competition also, uh, when you've got this, uh, this situation, expanded sector, the caps on students being removed, um, competition has got increasingly um, fierce and cutthroat. Um, the introduction of the Teaching Excellence Framework from 2016, uh, which base, is based heavily on the, avail you know, the sort of quickly available data from the National Student Survey, has increased this focus on teaching quality and teaching excellence, whatever we mean by that. Uh, and this continues to rise relentlessly across the sector and impacts ever more directly on doctoral researchers who teach. So in some cases, um, to the extent that um, so-called teaching scholarships, so people going up, going, being funded uh, or getting scholarships to do their PhDs, but with that they have to teach whether they have a vocation for it or not. Um, these are, this caused rather a, a scandal, so um, some of them have been discontinued, but not all, they still exist um, in, in some places, but more frequently um, they're being replaced by new contracts of employment for GTAs. Um, so along with this focus on excellence has been an increasing requirement for um, doctoral researchers who teach to gain formal recognition or qualification for their teaching. Um, whereas, it, so when I first started doing it, um, it was the case that it was, it was something you did, uh, but you didn't, you know, there wasn't an insistence that you did teach training. I remember uh, going to the University of Liverpool in Abercrombie Square, sitting in a room on a Wednesday afternoon and having a little chat about small group teaching and assessment with a small group of us. Um, but things are very different now. So, um, and there's huge diversity across the sector in terms of how this is expected to be done. So two institutions that I know well, one institution expects all graduate teachers um, to gain uh, Associate Fellow of the Higher Education Academy directly through an application route they're expected to get it by the end of their first year of teaching. Um, and if they don't get it, then they won't get their contract renewed. Um, in another institution, they uh, GTAs are expected to take the 
full whole first module of an MA program, um, which and there are pluses and minuses with with both. One, it's kind of more streamlined, but there's not a lot of support which engages them with the pedagogy. And the other, the MA program, of course, this is more central, um, but there's a huge waiting list because there aren't enough staff to teach the huge numbers of GTAs. So huge diversity and, and also issues around equity in terms of whether people can get uh, get the support and the training for teaching. So this, of course, has a, an impact on PGLT uh, P, uh, experience. Um, they're expected to juggle multiple activities and roles, student, research, employee, teacher, um, and this experience often described as a liminal one uh, by scholars such as Ranieri and Kiefer, um, can leave them feeling ambiguous or unsure about their competencies, priorities and identities within their own communities of practice. <coughs> so, what do we expect um, doctoral researchers, um, or what do we expect their training to be, uh, to, to be made up of in general and with regards to teaching? What should it cover and where should teaching fit in? So here are some general expectations, again taken from the um, expectations for postgraduate training. So super high quality supervision with well trained supervisors, support around careers and employability and impact, uh, specialist research skills and transferable skills, and then some training in ethics and public engagement. So had to be a virtuous researcher. Uh, and opportunities to engage and network outside the home institution. Okay. So, where does teaching fit into this? Well, if you look at the VTI's research development framework, it's tucked away in domain D of that, which is engagement, influence and impact. And teaching is there alongside things like global citizenship, public engagement, communication media. Um, there are different phases that are recognised uh, of, of a researcher's development, of course. I've put up on this slide the first two, which are most alignable with um, PGRs who teach. So you can see here things like, to start with, contributing to undergraduate teaching, assisting maybe in supervising undergraduate projects, participating in meetings, seminars, conferences, and beginning to get a sense of the ways in which research influences and interacts with teaching. Um, and then the more developed stage, uh, starting to have a sense of their ethos, uh, assisting um, with the development of student research skills, perhaps co-supervising postgraduate research projects, um, but recognising the significance of translating their research or research generally into other educational outputs like teaching and then organising uh, the events that they were participating in previously. So how does this then fit in with this increasing demand for recognition of teachers, uh, graduate teachers? Uh, so this is what... Um, the PGRTs are expected to gain recognition against the UK Professional Standards Framework for Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. 
published by the HEA in 2011. So I'm sure most of you are familiar with, with this framework, but basically um, if you look at the, the requirements of a fellow, and that is typically early career academics, um, someone who's in, a, say, a probationary lecturer or something of that sort, um, they're expected to model something described as integrated um, approach to academic practice and actively incorporate subject and pedagogic research and scholarship into their teaching. Um, the category which most uh, graduate teachers are asked to, uh, to apply for is associate fellow so that's the first category and there isn't explicit evidence required of them integrating their research with their teaching but they're expected um, they're expected to sort of have a sense that they will be incorporating some elements of it into into their teaching at least thinking about it and reflecting on it Now, there have been attempts to sort of jam these two models together, and um, Julie's kindly got some copies here of Vitae's teaching lens on its, um, <laughs> on its RDF. And as you, you'll not be able to see at this, I can't actually see that, that's, too, that's very blurry. Uh, but you'll be able to see... Uh, in, in, in beautiful colour, the, the version that uh, Julie's handing around. And so this is an attempt to, to represent this, this sense of integrated <coughs> academic practice. Um, and just to say that it, it has many similarities, this idea with the research teaching nexus, <coughs> which is this concept which has been used very much since, developed since the 1960s. And generated much interest over the last 20 years. Um, there's a, a useful summary of, of the work done in it by um, uh, Malcolm Tite in one of his uh, kind of overviews. He's published many of them. Um, and it elucidates in a systematic um, way uh, you know, sort of the literature on, on this. So... He summarises it and says it refers to a foundational relationship or bond between the two core activities of HE, research and teaching. Now, the concept, it assumes that this relationship exists and it should be a positive one and productive. And it also suggests that institutions and academics should be actively engaging in both. Now, <coughs> you'll have your own views on how useful this particular document is. But I must say, at first sight, it does rather look like just sort of, well, here's the RDF and we've chopped up, we've cut up the uh, the UK PSF and we've kind of stuck it round the outside. Um, there's lots of sort of, you know, the motivational comments about how the two things should should be used together with, in training and so on, so on. But I'll just leave that with you as an example of one of the attempts to uh, to address uh, this issue of integrated practice and how it might impact on researchers. So, um, how is training for doctoral researchers delivered? So, in general, so we still have the supervisorial model, uh, basically mentoring, um, and some training and support for teaching, as my research indicated, is still delivered in this way. 
We have graduate schools and colleges, in institutions, usually institution-wide, but can sometimes be limited by discipline. So, um, for example, in my current institution, the School of um, Engineer Maths, Engineering and Computer Science has, has bought in um, something which it describes as a doctoral college training specifically for engineers and associated um, STEM areas. And then, of course, you've got the various extra or inter-institutional structures like doctoral training partnerships um, and centres, collaborative doctoral training programmes and so forth. In terms of teaching, as I mentioned, you've got qualification routes, which can be introductory certificates, full PG certs, academic professional apprenticeships, Recognition routes, usually around applications, which are based on experience of teaching. And then other methods, um, which might include peer-supported um, peer reviews of teaching, so teaching observations, assessment monitoring and uh, moderation, and of course, ad hoc advice. So, what are the implications of these the, the models and practices that we have and what challenges do we face and what do doctoral researchers say about this so these are just some very broad headings um, first one training what training um, many many PGRTs are teaching well before they get any training and in sometimes before they even get any real guidance on what's expected of them you know for those of us who uh, work even if we work in places which have got systems set up um, this this is still the, the experience for some postgrad uh, doctoral researchers who teach it can be impacted by the lack of a, of a, of a rigorous university policy lack of organization or prioritization uh, of of development of uh, of GTAs at a more local level in departments and schools, um, but it's it's still a reality, sadly. Um, there are different timescales and paths to to recognition. As I said, you know there are um, recognition routes, there are qualification routes, um, which. Which have their, you know, their advantages and disadvantages, but there are in both in both instances there are still PGRs who teach or visiting lecturers, people who come in just to deliver on particular courses, um, who are teaching but have never heard of the program that exists for them, um, and this has significant implications in some cases because if they don't take these courses and if they don't pass these courses. They won't be allowed to continue teaching um, if if this comes to the attention of some authorities or other. And this is very, you know, if they don't know about it, not told about it, you know, this is very much kind of a hidden curriculum that's operating, and it's one which is is likely to disadvantage them. So the other issue is that there is a dearth of integrated training and, and a lack of follow up too. So teacher training is still quite limited. So in some, some people are just getting an introductory course 
um, with no follow-up, not enough time to cover important issues or respond to the actual concerns that uh, doctoral researchers and others have. Where there is an ongoing programme or a suite of courses, of course opportunities for PGRTs to undertake more training when they have time. And in my uh, experience of doing a little bit of research on this, most PGRTs I spoke to were very positive about wanting training and wanting to take advantage of the opportunities that, they were, that were there. Um, there are concerns um, which I'm sure those of you who do run courses or programmes will have heard, concerns that institution level training is too broad or too generic, not relevant to my discipline, you know, uh, this is really tedious. You know, it's a one-size-fits-all and it's not specific for somebody who teaches maths or uh, sociology or whatever. Um, some, there is some training, of course, that's linked to disciplines or ways of teaching um, more than others. Peer-to-peer um, -peer learning is valued, but by nature it's quite ad hoc. depends which group you're in and with it, whether you get on with people and whether you actually get to the training at all. Also, issues around, that are raised around training being too theoretical, uh, focused on learning theory, not enough training on soft skills, uh, and you know what's actually going to happen in the classroom. Um, another quite worrying issue is feedback that assessment and feedback is not being covered uh, adequately enough in training. Um, Research training is often um, completely divorced from teacher training, often delivered by different uh, groups of people entirely. And whilst there is cooperation in some places, it's not, it's not guaranteed and it's not everybody's experience. And even though efforts have been made to address the lack of equity between, say, for example, funded um, PhDs <coughs> and non-funded, two-tier experiences certainly do exist. We run into the issue, of course, of cultural conflict um, within local context over the relative value <coughs> of teaching. So Bachelor and Trowler um, in 2001, you know, wrote ages ago about how tribes and territories in academia um, were, were operating, and they're still alive and well. Um, in some places, teaching is definitely seen as a second-order activity, to quote one of the interviewees I spoke to, um, describing a description given by their supervisor. Um, and it presents a model of teaching and, and research as the opposite of being integrated. And when such messages are delivered within the relative privacy of the supervisorial relationship, um, it can be very impactful uh, both on people's philosophy uh, that that sort of sense of teaching ethos that they're developing or not. Uh, and supervisors still can have control about whether uh, their doctoral students teach or not. Um, also, we, in my experience, we, can, we see doctoral researchers who teach failing modules that they need to pass because supervisors and module leaders are scheduling meetings, scheduling teaching, when the training's happening, so they're actually sort of making sure that they can't attend. And finally, time, workload and teaching level. So we all know that PGRs now face greater time constraints 
and higher workloads. They must complete their research degrees quicker than ever and generate impact and publish in good journals uh, sooner than ever before. They must also be become effective digital scholars uh, as well as teaching um, during their doctoral studies. Um, and one thing which I think is really important uh, that came out of my research is the, the limits that um, the type of teaching that um, doctoral researchers are able to do, very short term, they're not involved in curriculum design very often, means that the type of teaching they're doing is really basic. And that has really imp implications both for student experience, but also for their own development. If they're just stuck in a sort of a cycle of just doing simple sort of seminar seminars where they just they're just kind of replicating going through a list of questions that somebody else has given them, and in my experience they feel really frustrated by by that. Um, I've included some just some quotations here from uh, people I spoke to. I won't read them through them now, um, but basically. Um, this kind of summarises some of the things that came out of it. So feeling thrown in at the deep end, not aware what's expected um, by the university, by departments and students. As I say, can feel that frustrated that they can only teach at a basic level because they've not been trained and also the type of teaching that they're invited to do um, is not progressing them as teachers, not developing them as teachers. They're not prepared, being prepared for the work they actually do. Some of the um, PGRTs I spoke to were also acting as personal tutors and had no preparation whatsoever for being personal tutors. Uh, people getting worried about assessing students because knowing that if they assess them and they fail, um, the implications back on them and, you know, I've not been trained to do this. Um, GTA contracts, although, the, you know, in theory, much better than the types of scholarships I was talking about, um, then, you know, can create their own problems. So, for example, you know, to try and help uh, PGR, PGRs not overload themselves, so, for example, giving them a 150-hour limit um, for their teaching, but then putting into that the training, t the time for training, so actually they're saying, well, we, are gonna ha we have to take another job as well because we don't have enough money to, to survive. And, you know, it's not fair treating training as teaching. It's not. Um, some of the things that they do to draw on the gaps which they find, so they draw on their experience of learners. Some of them go back to their undergraduate notes and start using those for teaching materials, um, module leaders' advice, supervised advice and teaching materials, and, of course, good old trial and error. Um, so, what next? I think what uh, what this suggests is certainly making sure people are trained before they teach, in some ways, or at least have some guidance. Um, greater flexibility in terms of available routes available, um, and to diversify development after the f and, and continue support after the first mandatory training has been completed. And then the question mark, because that's for you to discuss as we go along. So thank you very much. Thank you.